welcome to the next episode of our Topics in Drug Testing podcast. My name is Frank Samaro, and I'm the Director of Marketing for the Clinical Drug Monitoring Franchise here at Quest. I'm super excited about today's episode. It's titled, The 2022 CDC Clinical Practice Guideline for Prescribing Opioids for Pain. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this discussion. Our experts will review these new guidelines and also share a summary of the new Quest Health Trends Report, Drug Misuse in America. As always, our podcast will feature Quest's very own Dr. Jeff Gooden and Dr. Jack Kane. Jeff and Jack, it's great to have you with us today. I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourselves and get the discussion started. Thanks, Frank. This is Dr. Jeff Gooden. I am faculty at University of Miami, board certified in anesthesia, pain management, addiction medicine, and hospice and palliative care. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jack Kane. Jack, give us a quick intro. Hey, Dr. Gooden. Thanks for having me today. I'm, I'm Dr. Jack Kane, director and medical science liaison, specifically for toxicology at Quest Diagnostics. Great. And I'm a consultant to Quest Diagnostics in the Drug Monitoring and Toxicology Division. Today, we're here to talk to you about the CDC Clinical Practice Guidelines for Prescribing Opioids for Pain in the U.S. The updated version, as you all know, was updated back in 2022, originally came out in 2016. And we're going to review with you some of the findings that we at Quest find through our data monitoring. It's called our Quest Health Trends Report, Drug Misuse in America 2022. And we'll give you some idea of how you can get that report. So let's talk about the CDC Opioid Practice Guidelines. Like I mentioned before, there was a need, obviously, because we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic, to teach clinicians about appropriate prescribing of opioid analgesics for chronic pain. So back in 2016, the CDC put together a panel to come up with what they consider to be evidence-based guidelines. A lot of it was uh, kind of opinionated. It was met with much controversy. It put daily maximum equivalents that they call MMEs, mean morphine milligram equivalents per day. Most pain specialists thought these numbers were rather low, but let's face it, the higher the dose of opioids that you prescribe, the more risk there is to patients. But rather than saying that, they picked some arbitrary morphine milligram equivalents per day that the insurance companies jumped on board and started to write letters to doctors. So again, lots of controversy. The 2022 update fixed some of those things, and they did something really great. I mean, they kept the report format where there's 12 evidence-based recommendations for primary care, and this is new for 2022, and any other clinicians who provide pain care, including those prescribing opioids, and they extended it from chronic pain to acute pain, which they call less than four weeks or a month, subacute pain of one to three months, and chronic pain. The original report only talked about chronic pain, which is a duration of, of three months or longer. And the reason for the expanded update in 2022 is because clinicians are kind of navigating around those guidelines and taking them literal word for word. And the CDC said, okay, listen, anybody who gets opioids, whether it's for a day, a month, or a year, is at risk. Look, the whole goal here is to try to make it safer to prescribe this very important class of medications for those patients who fail other types of treatment. So Jack, give us an idea of what the summary of the 2022 clinical practice guidelines was intended to do. The 2022 clinical practice guideline, you know, it's intended to help clinicians improve communication with patients about the benefits and risks of pain treatments, including opioid therapy for pain, and it emphasizes shared decision-making by patients and clinicians. 
It's also meant to help clinicians improve the safety and effectiveness of pain treatment, mitigate pain, improve function and quality of life for patients with pain, reduce the risks associated with opioid pain therapy, including opioid use disorder, overdose and death, and ensure equitable access to effective, informed, individualized and safe pain management. Yeah, absolutely. And all of those things were important. And like I said before, the guidelines were not intended to replace clinical judgment or individualized patient care. And that's what the original guidelines kind of did. There weren't intended to be inflexible standards. But like I said, the payers, even CMS kind of jumped on board and adopted many of the principles in the 2016 guideline document to really affect the way care is provided to pain patients. There weren't meant to be laws or regulations about prescribing, yet most of the CDC guidelines are quoted for things like medical board cases and lawsuits against doctors. And literally, it's not supposed to be used for cancer, pain, palliative care, end of life, sickle cell disease, or those kind of advanced palliative conditions. And it's not focused on opioids when prescribed for, let's say, a substance use treatment disorder for any type of addiction or opioid use disorder. So Jack, they group the 12 evidence-based recommendations into four areas. Tell us what those four areas were. Yeah, one, determining whether or not to initiate opioids for pain, selecting opioids and determining opioid dosages. Number three, deciding duration of initial opioid prescription and conducting follow-up. And what we'll get into a little bit more later is assessing risk and addressing potential harms of opioid use. And those were recommendations 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now, 12 recommendations might sound like a lot, but there are summary sheets, little PDFs that you could print out for your practice, which are easy to read, easy to digest, and they're pretty logical. It makes a lot of sense. It's not going to come as any surprise about how to prescribe opioids safely. But there's one specifically, obviously, this is a podcast sponsored by Quest Diagnostics that we wanted to mention to you today. And that's recommendation number 10, which is dedicated to toxicology testing. So, Jack, could you let the audience know what recommendation 10 says about drug testing? Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier the CDC guidelines are not meant to replace clinical judgment. Well, neither is a drug test result. You know, it's one piece of the clinical picture. So recommendation 10 in the new CDC opioid treatment guidelines states before starting opioids and periodically, at least annually. During opioid therapy, clinicians should consider the benefits and risks of toxicology testing to assess for prescribed opioids and other prescription and non-prescription controlled substances that increase risk for overdose when combined with opioids. Hey, Jack, I can tell you I've been in the pain management space still seeing patients to this day for 25 years, and I can't imagine, well, I was in the world before urine toxicology testing, but I can't imagine prescribing a controlled substance now in these risk mitigation times without having urine drug testing data. So for the primary care docs or heaven help us, the pain docs that are prescribing out there and not drug testing, you should know that the recommendation by CDC is to consider the benefits and risks of toxicology testing. How else, Jack, would a doctor know what's in a patient's system if they don't drug test? Can you get that from the, the PDMP, the state drug report? No, that only tells you what is prescribed and or dispensed, it doesn't show what's actually passed through a patient's system. And how do we know that? We see the formation of a metabolite in a urine specimen that indicates that a drug has actually passed through a patient's body. So a very unique perspective that drug testing can provide. 
and also very useful data on many occasions, which is why we have thousands of providers across the nation use this tool. Let me tell you, after 25 years of treating patients with substance use disorder and advanced pain syndromes, that they're not always truthful about the medications that they take. And that's a topic for another podcast, right? But they want to be a good patient. They don't want you to think they're misbehaving. Maybe the, what you're giving them isn't really working. So they're taking their mom's or their son's pills or something like that. Toxicology testing gives you useful insights into what medicines a patient is or isn't taking. And as a matter of fact, whether they're drinking alcohol, we could test for, whether you're using illicit drugs. So again, not being able to drug test a patient, I think would just handcuff a clinician. And for those of you out there that are prescribing controlled substances, even when benzodiazepines and psychostimulants, it is important to drug test your patients to know what they're taking or what they're not taking. Jack, one of the other important things the CDC said is, you know what? We didn't address this in the 2016 guidance document, but there seems to be a lot of bias and stigma when it comes to treating pain patients, especially around drug testing. So what do they recommend to minimize this bias? Clinicians, practices, and health systems should aim to minimize bias in testing and should not apply this recommendation differentially. So practice policies regarding testing and frequency can help minimize bias. For example, routine use of testing with standardized policies at the practice or clinic level might help destigmatize their use. Because truly random testing might not be feasible in clinical practice, some clinics obtain a specimen at every visit and only send it for testing on a random schedule. You know, Jack, I've heard the opponents of drug testing say that, look, you know, you use this as kind of the gotcha tool. You're just looking to catch somebody to throw them out of your practice. And what we tell clinicians is, look, this shouldn't be a punitive test. It's got to be another test that helps you keep the patient along a, a clinical pathway, right? You want them to take the medicines they're supposed to and not take anything that's going to endanger themselves. Give us an idea of what we should do if something comes back that let's say we can't explain. I do a presumptive test and it comes back positive for, I don't know, cocaine. And the patient says, doc, I swear I didn't do anything. Is, is there anything from a lab perspective that we could do? Yeah, it might be prudent to send for confirmation. Send it to a definitive testing method, usually done at, you know, your the reference lab of choice. Um, and that provides a unique perspective, a true positive result, essentially, uh, for the provider. And it generally is more granular than a screen, meaning it can show specifically which metabolites are present and at what level. And let's face it, what's the doc going to do if he gets a funny test result back? What should he do? See the patient back more frequently? Look, aberrant tests happen. Specimen samples get mixed up. But, you know, things happen. But you can't just ignore it. You have to address it with the patient. You have to follow up closely and clearly keep in mind that they've had this test. So Jack, let's talk about kind of best practices with drug testing. Give us an idea of, you know, I mentioned the words presumptive or send for definitive. Give us the, the differences between types of testing. Yeah, limited toxicology screening can be performed relatively inexpensively with presumptive immunoassays. So these are your general screens. You know, it could be like a hospital immunoassay. It could be a desktop immunoassay. It could be even a point of care test, those instant results that provide a general picture, like a screen for a drug class. So anyone who's used an instant drug test result, will, they'll see it says opiates positive. Well, you know, that's great, but which opiate is it? Well, that's where a definitive test or a confirmatory test done at a reference lab might help paint that picture. 
Is it, you know, hydrocodone? Is it hydrocodone plus codeine? Is it just morphine? Um, so a confirmatory test provides a more granular snapshot, um, and it's up to clinicians to decide when those tests might be appropriate. And Jack, how do they do those tests from a lab standpoint? A definitive test, a confirmatory test is usually done on liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. It can be gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. Both are definitive testing methods. And when you get a result, you know, that is the gold standard result in identifying substances that occur in nature. That's great. You know, Jack, before we end, I just want to remind our audience that we at Quest do a publication every year for probably the last 10 years or so called Health Trends. Last year was called Drug Misuse in America 2022, a decade lost to the drug crisis. You could find this resource available online free of charge. Read about our insights into more than 20 million de-identified clinical laboratory tests performed by Quest to see we're not just recommending drug testing just because you'll see that half of the samples that come into Quest, patients either aren't taking their medicines or they're taking more medications than they should. And if you think about it, I mean, just think about the last 10 years. 10 years ago, we had about 40,000 opioid-related overdose deaths in this country. If you remember that number in 2021, it was more than 100,000. So even though we're more in tune with the drug crisis, more people are dying from drug misuse. So we hope that you'll use the reports like the Quest Health Trends Report to kind of educate yourself about drug misuse in the U.S., think about what's been fueling it, and think about how you might be able to incorporate some of these risk mitigation tools into your practice. Jack, if you could, bring some of the key findings from the 2022 Health Trends Report. We had our top five key findings, again, from these 20 million drug test results de-identified over a 10-year period. Um, the top key findings were, number one, prescription drug misuse involving opioids and other controlled medications taken by patients under the care of a physician continues at a troubling rate. In 2021, nearly half of people tested, around 49%, showed evidence of drug misuse compared to 60% in 2012. So has it decreased a bit? And according to our drug testing data, yeah, a little bit, but you know, 49% is still significant and very concerning. Number two, polysubstance use or drug mixing has increased. In 2021, 52% of drug tests showed evidence of drug mixing, a relative increase of 58% from our data in um, 2012, which was at 33%. So a lot of drug mixing going on. It could be for many reasons, co-formulation of illicit drugs on the street, or just double dosing with two different medications. And then number, key finding number three, amphetamines. Those results have surged fivefold. In 2021, 9.2% of patients tested were positive for amphetamines compared to 1.8% in 2012. You know, we've even heard of a amphetamine or Adderall shortage in this country, but our positivity shows that amphetamines are still really pervasive in this country. And number key finding four, though, individuals of all ages misuse medications and illicit drugs at high rates. Younger individuals ages 18 to 34 years old uh, were more likely to show signs of misuse. And then finally, our data shows in key finding five, female patients were more likely to use pain and anxiety reducing prescription medications such as opioids and benzodiazepines, while male patients had higher rates of illicit drug use such as cocaine. 
Yeah, so those are some amazing statistics. For those of you that are treating patients with controlled substances, I'll say it again. I said it, Dr. Kane said it. Nearly half of the patients tested showed evidence of misuse. They didn't have the drug in their system or they had other drugs that didn't belong there. Psychostimulants, amphetamines has surged. Younger individuals are certainly more at risk, but it happens in all age groups and it happens in, in male and female. So we appreciate you joining us today for this podcast. Kind of to summarize, we're still in the midst of a prescription drug and an illicit drug crisis, and it is unlikely to go away. I mean, there is a surge of illicitly manufactured opioids, fentanyl, and others coming in from Mexico and China and, and across the border from South America. There are a lot of things clinicians could do. Drug testing is only part of the solution, but like CDC says, you should consider it if you have patients who are on controlled substances. Like Dr. Kane and I said, how else are you going to know what is in your patient's system unless you send them for drug testing? Need to keep in mind that there are certain patient populations at risk for drug misuse, like those with mental health conditions, particularly anxiety and depression. Social disparities of health, usually we see more commonly uh, medication misuse. And like the CDC guidelines, the new ones from 2022 say, to reduce the stigma and prevent bias, if you're going to test one patient, you need to test all patients. You can't just stereotype and pick out select patients who you think need to be, need to be tested. So moving forward, we need to harness the power of our healthcare system to figure out who's at risk for drug misuse, how do we screen them, how do we monitor them over time, how do we prescribe important pain medications that patients might need while keeping them and their families safe, how do we reduce the harms. We think drug testing has a lot to do with that. Jack, maybe talk a little bit about expanding treatment options. Yeah, expand treatment options, include harm reduction programs and access to support services, but making sure that providers are using all the tools available that can actually help reduce risk or identify, let's say, relapse in close proximity to when it occurs. You could do that with some of the tools provided at Quest. And as we mentioned before, that's just one piece of treating the patient, one piece of helping to expand the clinical picture of the patient. Well, Dr. Jack Kane, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. This is Dr. Jeff Gooden. For those of you who listen, thanks for joining. You can find the 2022 CDC Opioid Prescribing Guidelines online. Feel free to look up the summary PDFs that I recommended of the 12 guidance recommendations. For those of you, for this is your first Quest podcast, you can go to questdrugtesting.com. Find the podcast that we've recorded before. There's at least a dozen or more of them on various topics in drug testing. We thank you guys for joining us and have a great day. So that does it for today's discussion on the CDC guidelines and the health trend report. I'd like to thank our experts, Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane, for being with us today and sharing their information and expertise. Just a few notes to wrap up. To learn more about our Quest drug monitoring offering, please visit questdrugmonitoring.com. Here you'll find information on our test directory, our offerings, as well as educational resources and insights from our team of toxicology experts. To listen to this and all our other podcasts on drug testing, be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe through your favorite podcast venue. At Quest Diagnostics, we are committed to providing you results and insights to support your clinical decisions.